At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello, and welcome back to Best in Show, the podcast on rabbits and cavies. I'm Bryony Smith, and I am joined, as always, by the suave and talented Alan Messick from California. Alan, um, what do you have coming up in the rabbit world? Oh my gosh, <laughs> such a compliment. I'm not having a suave day. You know, you, you know you're a rabbit breeder when you are tattooing rabbits and you spill your ink on your carpeted table, right? Not once today, by the way, but I, I did it twice. And I'm not talking like a little dab. I'm talking like half a bottle status. So that, that's what that's I'm, I'm having one of those those non, non suave days. But I, I appreciate the compliment. Um, otherwise, out here in my rabbit world, um. You know, it's it's warming up and breeding rabbits. We're still on that cusp of convention litters, you know, junior. So uh, breeding hard and, and getting excited to return to the ARBA convention later this year in Louisville. I am so excited. Um, I am currently working with our presenters to get them ready for the new breed and variety presentations. I just sent presenter packets a couple of days ago, letting them know um, all the steps they'll need to take to um, help with a successful presentation at convention. And I know everyone's really, really antsy to get going. And I, this weekend, am going to the um, Rabbit Show, Rabbit Breeders Anonymous show in Minnesota. This is the show held by Jason Karwaski's club. Jason was our guest in episode three. So I'm looking forward to being a part of one of those shows. So awesome. I loved his message. And I didn't really know Jason before we did the podcast, but um, I have followed him since um, on Facebook. And he is um, he has a powerhouse and, and his message and his his outlook and vision for rabbits, you know, like, let's get back to doing this. And I loved what he said in his podcast coming from the poultry side where they in that in his region dealt with bird flu in the past and how shows stopped because of bird flu. And once bird flu was over, everyone got out and there, there were no shows anymore. So he understands from like a first, you know, firsthand level, like why it's so important to not stop. So it's so cool. That you get to judge his show. I'm going to judge his June show actually. So I'm really excited to, to go up there to Minnesota. It's been a long time since I've been up there. So very cool. So have a great trip to, to Minnesota. Well, thank you. It'll be a fun one. I'm driving up, but that's okay. I've got some other podcasts to listen to. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I don't know about you, but I've been like podcast obsessed with lots of, I, I'm into like psychology. So I've been listening to a lot of psych podcasts lately, but um, yeah, there's so many, so many great podcasts out there and lots of good information. There are, I, I actually just started a new one. Um, it's called real life, real crime. And I like true crime, but I'm really picky about it. Like, I don't like the stuff that's just, you know, that sensationalizes criminals or 
that, um, you know, kind of like tries to rejudge cases. You know, some of it is just like someone decided that this person couldn't possibly have done these horrible things. And so they're going to, you know, dig it up. You know, people that aren't really experts at this, they just kind of they're fans or whatever. Um, but this one is actually hosted by a retired detective and it talks about his cases and you get that law enforcement point of view. And, and these are like bad people doing really bad things. Like there's, there's no sympathy for these perpetrators here. Um, but it's interesting cause you get some perspective into like how the things flow, the behind the scenes um, and kind of just, you know, how cops think. Um, so there's, you know, a little bit of, you know, expert opinion, a little bit of, you know, cop spidey sense and a little bit of gallows humor, which is kind of necessary to do that job. Um, but I've really gotten into that one. So anyway, I digress. <laughs> no, I could, I, I totally get it. Girl. <laughs> Don't worry. I do. I've been doing a lot of road trips lately too. And it's, it's podcasts all the way. And I feel sorry for anyone that's got to drive with me because they're like, can we just listen to music please? And I'm like, no, we get, there's so much to listen and learn from this, this podcast. So, um, and, and that's cool what that, I like. It's the learning. Yes. Yes. There's, and it's free. That's the other thing. Like people think you pay for podcasts. No podcasts are totally free. And yes, by experts across any, any subject. I heard recently there were over a million podcasts, not podcast episodes, but a million unique podcasts um, in the, in the world. And we happen, by the way, only have the one dedicated to rabbits, which is great. But, um, you know, literally every little subculture has a podcast these days. And there's so much good stuff if you're into something that's <laughs> kind of niche. Uh, find a podcast because there's going to be one for you. I guarantee it. And we thank you for choosing ours. <laughs> so, we so do. Um, to start into this, you'd asked me to um, choose something from 1992. And I was really excited because I've been waiting for you to do this. Because the DR I pulled out has got... The most hilarious DR cover I have seen. I will take a picture of this and I will share it um, in a comment under our post about this episode on the Rubber Tree page. So you can go look for that. It's got a cartoon drawing. It's a guy in a lab coat. You know, his name tag says Miller Rabbitry. So the sign on the wall says he's got satins in New Zealand. You can see little cartoon rabbits in the cages. And he's saying, hello, Acme. We've got a mix up here. Remember the buck and doe I ordered? Well... And standing behind him is a very, like, ripped guy in a G-string holding balloons with bunny ears. Oh my God. This is on the cover woman, of the DR? Yes, and a woman in a bikini with the same. What? In 92? Yes. yes. Oh this is one of the first issues I got as a kid. And it's beat up. You're going to hear it crackling as I thumb through it and read things. And it's beat up because I would drag him. Like, anytime we go in the car, I take rabbit books and read them and whatnot. But, yeah, I just carried this around. I was a little 10-year-old kid. Oh my God, it's amazing your mother let you stay. In this, in this thing you know she's a librarian so she's very non-judgmental <laughs> oh, about publications yeah <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> oh, Lord. so in 1992 some interesting happenings um first i noticed on the listing of new clubs there were a lot of them the hobby was really growing at this stage um there were several 4-h clubs there were several local clubs there were several local and regional specialty clubs um Clubs were clubs, clubs, clubs. They were really forming um, very quickly. Um, there's a report in here by Dr. James McNitt, who was chair of the commercial committee, talking about a few things. Um, one was the Animal Welfare Act, um, which was talking about, you know, buying and selling animals. 
Um, and what they had come up with, which made us really happy, was you don't need a license as long as you're selling breeding stock to other breeders and pet owners. Um, you would if you were selling to labs or wholesale to pet stores. Um, and it says, um, thanks to uh, Soper's Rabbitry in Caledonia, Michigan, John Soper, for pointing out the change in the law. Um, there was a section about rabbits as an agricultural commodity. Um, there was some concern about uh, a breeder had written in saying that he was concerned about local zoning, preventing him from having a backyard rabbitry. These things were kind of just starting to to take place in the early 90s. Interestingly, um, the American Society of Animal Society, American Society of Animal Science was meeting in August of 1992. Dr. Douglas Gray from the Plum Island Animal Disease Center was speaking on viral hemorrhagic disease. Um and then another doctor from Plum Island was going to speak on the implications of rabbits as an agricultural commodity. Um, he said these talks will be relatively non-technical and aimed at a broad audience. I wonder if those and, guys are still there. That's that's amazing because Plum Island still serves as the as the base, the science base for testing RHD in in necropsies today. Right. Um, so actually, the Foreign Animal Disease Diagnostic Lab is going to be moving to Kansas. Really? Point. Yeah. Um, it's coming wow. up, um, yeah, around Manhattan, Kansas, which is where Kansas State University, yes. my alma mater, is located. Um, cool. Yeah, there was a Fifth World Rabbit Congress held at Oregon State University in Corvallis that year. Um, in the Standards Committee report, there are some important interpretations that have become um, kind of, you know, commonplace to us. But we remember that we, you know, we all learned these things as they were coming along. There was a clarification about um, the French Angora DQ for any wool on the front feet from the toes, the first joint of the leg. Um, so they were talking about, you know, clarification to state that this was the ankle joint. Um, talked about Jersey woolies were to be judged by groups, not individual varieties. And it said that the Jersey woolly is the only breed which does not break out colored and whites into separate classes for breed wool. Wow. Um there, it says there seemed to be confusion on allowable colors in the American Fuzzy Lop and um, <sighs> that the color guide listed in the front of the ARBA standard. Remember, this was a 9195 yes, standard yes. that just had the, a color guide listed in the front um, that it said that this didn't apply to Fuzzy Lops. They had their own. Wow. Um, this is one that that I think is, you know, we think now is pretty obvious, but there's a question ar that ar had arisen concerning mis unmatched toenails. It's a general DQ listed for all breeds unless they specifically accept their variety or breed. Um, he says the only ones that come to mind that allow them are the Harlequin breed and the broken variety at the time in all breeds except many Rex. Hmm. All other cases should be DQ'd. Um, and then the part about measuring ears. Hmm. Um, yeah, so the easiest way is to loosely hold the animal's ears together and then insert your ruler between the ears, being sure that the base of the ruler sits in the base of the skull. And now we've got, of course, photographs in the standard to illustrate this. An explicit um, so, diagram of, or pictorial view of how to measure ears on an English lop. Right. Uh, it said, this will give a much truer reading than trying to pull the ear down and measure each ear individually. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I can only imagine what prompted some of this. Yeah, right. Um, it said the Texel cavy was approved for the first showing at the Pomona ARBA convention, and it included a standard for the Texel cavy. There was some information about the upcoming convention in Columbus, Ohio. And there was also um, an in memoriam for someone we've actually heard about several times on this episode, Doris Leibel. So I thought I'd read that 
quickly. Um, it says, Ms. Doris Leibel of Grantsburg, Wisconsin, recently passed away after a very short illness. She was a longtime member of ARBA, first joining in 1949. She joined the, served the ARBA in many ways and was a director for a few terms, as well as serving Minnesota, where she lived for many years, and especially the 4-H of that area. Doris was very active over the years as a breeder of various breeds of rabbits and at one time had her own processing plant. She published several local, state, and national rabbit bulletins and served as secretary of the National Dutch Specialty Club at one time. She worked closely with the state and 4-H clubs and was instrumental in helping initiate many innovative programs for the youth of Minnesota. Doris received her registrar's license in 1953 and her judge's license in 1955 and officiated at many shows throughout the country. To her family and many friends, we extend our sincere condolences. And we've heard several times um, that she was maybe one of the first female judges. So she was licensed in 1955. So if there's anybody out there that happens to have any um, further information about that, please do let us know. Um, I also flipped through, you know, they had the letters from the royalty winners, which are always a lot of fun to read. Um, and I don't think that any of these kids are still involved in the rabbit hobby. Um, but I just, you know, something caught my eye that I thought was really kind of precious, but I liked it. It was from the rabbit prince, Aaron Barfield. And he wrote, at first, I wasn't going to enter the royalty contest because I didn't think I had enough experience. However, last year, I read the biographies of the other kids my age, and I thought that they sounded just like me. So if they could do it, I thought maybe I could too. I hope that someone else will be inspired to enter because win or lose, I had a lot of fun and learned a lot from the experience. So I think that that's just a really, really neat statement to to encourage people to get out there and look at what other people are doing and that maybe even if you don't think someone is watching, that you're serving as an inspiration for them. Well, and doesn't that resonate with all of us as rabbit people who... You know, this is a, a, a subculture, a niche uh, group of people in, you know, doing something that's kind of weird. <laughs> and <laughs> I love what he just said, you know, and I bet he was one of those kids in high school that probably was like, okay, do I tell my friends that I do this? You know, <laughs> but when he's around his, like I, like I did, right. But um, when he's with the rabbit people, like you're totally normal and, and you can do it. And to uplift your, your peers of your own age, to, to go and do those contests and get involved and. And not be afraid to do rabbits. I think that's that's awesome. What a great kid. Yeah, I liked it. He was actually a Youth Best in Show winner in 1994 at the Tulsa ARBA convention. And I remember this off the top of my head because that was the year I won Best to Breed. And so I got beaten <laughs> by his tan. But <laughs> Wow. Oh, he had a tan? Uh-huh. Yeah. No kidding. Wow. So cool. All right. So that's. Uh, do you have anything more from the rabbit side or should we roll into the world events? Uh, let's talk about the world in 1992. <laughs> well, I got to say, I'm not going to be able to beat a rabbit and a Speedo on the front cover of the DR. So <laughs> 1992 and the world was pretty bleak, but uh, it was the year that the 1992 or the Olympic Games were held in Barcelona, Spain. Um, Bill Clinton was elected U.S. president in 92. Um, here's one. <laughs> You're going to it's going to date both of us. Uh, the hit in the cinemas across the country in 92 was Wayne's World. <laughs> Those guys, and they speak like a group of Californians, right? Like sometimes I have to con control myself, like stop with the totally dude, you know, but uh, that was Wayne's World in 92. Uh, Jay Leno debuted The Tonight Show, which is hard to believe that it was just that long ago. So he didn't have, actually have as long of a run as I thought he did with The Tonight Show, but it started in 1992. Um, the Cold War was declared over in 92. And here's another one for us uh, children of the 80s and 90s. Um, here's a uh, the quote from the song. 
I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. Uh, with the lights out, it's less dangerous. Here we are now. Entertain us. Lyrics from <laughs> Nirvana's Smell Like Teen Spirit. That was a hit in 1992. So that's what I've got from the world. Oh, that that changed music entirely. Right. Everyone Ugh. started wearing flannel shirts, drinking Ugh. coffee, <laughs> listening and to oversized grunge. jeans. Ugh. Please. I still have my 90s Doc Martens. You know what? They're back and I've been wearing them to shows again. <laughs> No, 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 no. <laughs> Form fitting, please. <laughs> oh my gosh, ninety two. Yes, that, that maybe that was pretty consistent with a rabbit and speedo on the front cover of the domestic rabbits magazine. <laughs> it was Absolutely. a year remember. It, yeah, yeah. So go go take a look at that. Go to the rabbitry page. You've got to see this cover. It's it's Absolutely. hilarious. And just to think <laughs> that Oren Reynolds picked this out. Oh my I, gosh. <laughs> That may be the best part. I can't it's wait to see scream. it. It was before my time, but um, I'm definitely going to geek out on it. So we're very excited today to welcome our guest for this podcast episode. It, of course, is none other than Betty Chu. She is unquestionably the most celebrated or has the most celebrated line of Angora rabbits in the history of our industry worldwide. If you ask me, she's probably the most famous ra- face of all rabbit breeders across the world. Having appeared in um, popular internet memes about fluffy rabbits, the numerous TV shows in the U.S. and abroad, including the Steve Harvey show, Whose Line Is It Anyway?, and the movie, of course, Rabbit Fever. She's captured, of course, the very first ARBA convention Best in Show by an Angora, and that was back in 1992, and has since won group for Best in Show um, three times over the last 20 years. Betty was also a professor of economics at San Jose State University. And of course, we welcome the very famous Betty Chu to our podcast. Thanks for joining us, Betty. Well, thank you for having me. So you're, familiar, you're a very familiar face uh, to us who live in California on the West Coast. And of course, if you go to an Airbnb convention. But for those who don't know you, uh, tell us, you know, how did you get started in rabbits all these years ago and when? Uh, many years ago, I was teaching at San Jose State. And a colleague was going to the Asia to teach. So he has a pet rabbit, asked me to take care of it. And a friend's son, who was only nine years old, wanted a rabbit. So I look around and look around and uh, find some local people. And uh, we went to that rabbitry and was kind of in awe. So many rabbits. And... uh, the little kid whose name is Edward. Edward wasn't that interested in all the rabbits in front of him to bake. And I saw a French lab, which I really liked, but it wasn't for sale. So I was referred to another person and got a French lab. And the person said, would you like to go to a rabbit show? I said, sure, there's a rabbit show. And uh, she kind of gave me the instruction to go to rabbit shows and how to show rabbits. But the French lab wasn't very good at all. So <laughs> my biggest accomplishment would be if that French lab did not come in to the last place. <laughs> and what happened? Uh, she, she actually had babies, but the babies weren't very good either. Even though I was told, oh, she was not very good, but her babies will be show quality. So I said, oh, okay, okay. So like a lot of us, you uh, you get into rabbits and you you go with that 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 hope and dream that okay maybe it's maybe it's this one's not so good but maybe the next the next right. batch the next generation will be better and it still failed yeah definitely definitely and then along the way when i was in rabbit show i saw those fluffy ones i said oh i like those fluffy ones what are those and i was told those are new zealands oh okay. my god 
So I was set out to look for New Zealand. And uh, well, of course, New Zealand wasn't the Angora that I was thinking about. But eventually I saw in a fair that some people said, Angora babies for sale. So I called and uh, the person said, yeah, I have a litter coming up. And so I will tell you when it's ready. So I got a call and said, the babies are ready, so come by. And you see Los Gatos, supposed to be, you know, 40 minute drive. And I drove and drove and drove and finally got there, was in the, in the Santa Cruz mountains. It was those narrow road and the place had no water, no facility. And I went in and she showed me some four week old little babies. You know, after one and a half hour drive, I wasn't going to give up. So, <laughs> so I bought the four week old baby and uh, also bought the French lap to be a companion because the baby was just too young. And I came home and uh, it was a good omen because on that same day, when I got my first English Angora, I got home and I got a phone call saying that I was promoted to full professor at San Jose State University. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't know that story. So that was so a big that's day. that's how I started. But once again, that wasn't a very good for English Angora either. <laughs> Were they, was it more of a pet quality English Angora? Yeah, it's a pet quality, but I was able to make it into a grand champion just by my grooming. Wow. And, uh, but before she became a grand champion, by accident, she was bred by my French lab. Oh, no. <laughs> so your first litter of Angora rabbits were actually crossbred. Yeah, it was the ugliest thing oh, that you have ever seen. I can't seen. believe you're admitting this. <laughs> it was really ugly. Very, oh, my gosh. Ugly. And it was short hair, of course, because wool is recessive. Right. And because the daddy is a lab, so the ear was go going every direction. It's not really lab. It's not really <laughs> upright. You just go every direction it goes. And uh, I have this belief that is, if I bring them into this world, I'm responsible for them. So I took those babies and uh, tried my best to find them homes. And eventually I find them homes to every, of every one of them. Even if and they weren't then, that cute. <laughs> yeah, they, they became pets. Well, what happened to them, honestly, that I don't know, but I didn't eat them, I didn't kill them, and uh, I just find homes for them. And then eventually I bought a buck and the buck's name is Prince Charming, a very charming rabbit. But it was the longest, rangiest Angora rabbit you will ever see. <laughs> and remember, it's English Angora. That's, yeah, long and rangy does not go along with compact. No. And actually I bought the rabbit at about seven or eight weeks old and uh, about, I would say maybe four or five months old in the show, the breeder looked at it and said, boy, that is a long rabbit. Whose rabbit is it? <laughs> I look at her, I said, yours. You sold it to me. Oh. And she said to me, oh, it's not mine. It's yours. It's not my problem anymore. Oh. <laughs> wow, she was tough. <laughs> so anyway, that was my first two English Angora rabbits. And eventually and when I started looking and looking and looking, I met Bobby Meyer. Tell us uh, about Bobby Meyer um, and and maybe touch on some of your mentors. I know she was one of them, but um, Bobby Meyer, she's she's not as active as she once was. We don't see her very often. But uh, for those who don't know Bobby Meyer or knew her back then, um, who was she and what role did she play in your in your? Yes, Bobby Meyer was a judge, and uh, 
she was one of the few women judge at the time. There aren't that many women judge. You are talking about 1982, 82. And I saw she had some fun little babies in a show. And I was really interested. And she said they were all spoken for, but she would let me know when she has one which is suitable for me. So in 1983, in a show in Napa, California in June, and uh, she said to me, she said, Betty, I think I have a, a, a phone, phone doll which is suitable for you. Would you like to have it? I said, sure. And she said, you can come home with me after the show. So I followed her to her home. And uh, then she said, well, why don't you stay for dinner? And I had my husband take you out to the rabbit tree and uh, just walk around. She has maybe two, three hundred rabbits. I walk into this huge rabbit tree and I look and I saw this fawn, little fawn doe in a cage with mama and the little maid. I took one look. I said, that's the one. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? So we came back in and Bobby, I said to Bobby, I saw this cage and I described it. She said, yeah, that's the one that I, I reserved for you. Wow. Amazing. And what did you name her? I named her Bubbling Champagne. Wow. And the reason why it's called bubbling champagne was I thought I was going to get another white rabbit, white English Angora. So I thought it's going to be called bubbles. But other people came on saying, you should get one which is a champagne colored. Hmm. So we got one which is champagne colored. So I combined the two names together. It's called bubbling champagne. And, and what, uh, what year was that, by the way? You said it was in the 19, early 80s? 1983. Do you know that I was born in 1983? <laughs> no. I don't normally admit that, but. <laughs> but also another thing is that you and I have another connection via Bobby Meyer. Yes, and we do. I understand that your Angora goats were originally originally started with Bobby Meyer going to Randy. Believe it or not, yes, uh, we, we, you and I both have Angora in our lives. Mine, my happens to be on four four legs and a and a goat. Uh, with Angora goats. And yes, she did get us started. She got Randy started back in the, in the mid nineties, I believe. Um, she was one of the first to raise colored Angora goats and Randy got his start from her. And well, she started the basis for 25 years later, our, our line of Eureka mohair Angora goats. So that's, that's pretty amazing that we both have the same, <laughs> same yes. starting point. Yes. The same starting point. And also when I got best in show in 1992, I make three phone calls right afterwards. Remember, there was no cell phone. Uh, I don't think that we had emails when we were traveling. <laughs> and uh, I make three phone calls. The first phone call was to my husband. Mm-hmm. Second phone call was to Bobby Meyer. The third phone call was to a rabbit partner I had at, at the time. So I talked to Bobby Meyer, and Bobby said she would never imagine that she saw me a, an English Angora baby for $25 and ended up with a best in show on the, in the, inter, in the, you know, in the ARBA convention. Uh, that wasn't the same rabbit though. No, no, not the no. same rabbit. But all my rabbits, later. all my rabbits since then was descended from her and all my rabbits carried the year number of BC. Everyone oh. thought was Betty Chu. It's not Betty Chu. It's bubbling champagne. Wow. I, I did not know that. I, I thought all these years later it's, it was Betty Chu, but it's actually, a nod to your first bubbling champagne. No, it was from bubbling champagne because every single rabbit that I have today has bubbling champagne in the background. Oh, wow. 
I did not know that. So that was back in the in the early eighties. Um, you get hooked on angoras, and you mentioned when you first went to a rabbit show and you saw these rabbits. So, so what? You know, before you met Bobby, what was it that drew you to the English angora that you that in your mind you said I have to have that breed? Oh, I like like fluffy things. Have you always liked fluffy things and through your entire yeah. life? Well, I I always have uh, cats, and uh, the my favorite cats were white long hair cats, angora cats. So, you know, those white angora rabbits look just like my white cats so you've you've shared photos i i I happen to like cats as well as you know um and you shared a photo with me once uh during i I believe it was during your your graduate program in indiana of one of your angora cats tell us about angora cats because they they preceded angora rabbits in your life yes well actually i didn't even know what kind of cat it was it was just a cat from the human society animal shelter and uh we were in Indiana as a graduate student, and uh, I always always loved cats. I had a white cat when I was in Taiwan, but it was a short-haired one, and I had to give up, give her up when I came to the United States. No choice. So when I got married, first thing I wanted was to get a cat. The first cat I got wasn't white because you just got it from free, free ads, and there wasn't any white ones but I feel so bad not to take one. So I took a cabbie. So I was always looking for a cat, a white cat. And then I saw one in the animal shelter and I got it and it kept on growing and growing and growing and with long hair. And I look at all the pictures and uh, it looks like an Angora cat. So today I decided that she was an Angora cat. Well, actually it's a he. And there's also a funny story about it. See in Chinese, Naughty is pronounced as pi. So I thought that was a little naughty cat. So I call her, call him PP. Well, as you know, English was not my native language. <laughs> so I'd be calling in the neighborhood, always call PP, PP. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your Angora cat was named PP. And because your English wasn't that good, you didn't realize at the time that maybe that wasn't the most appropriate name. It, that is totally correct. <laughs> and uh, I didn't realize it until actually I came to San Jose because uh, I took her, he, he became sick and took him to, to the vet and the vet came on calling him Peppy. I said, <laughs> no, it's PP, it's not Peppy. The vet came on looking at me. Said, no, you don't want to call him PP. He's Peppy. I said, no, he's not Peppy. He's a PP. <laughs> And finally, I learned why it's a call. I shouldn't be calling him PP. <laughs> anyway, so, I, I like white, long-haired cats. So the kind of English Angora I saw in the show at the time was white, mostly, and they were fluffy. So I want one just like that. <laughs> so tell us about Angora rabbits back in the early 80s, because everyone today is familiar with the pictures we've seen online, uh, the rabbits we've seen at shows, you know, your winning photos in Domestic Rabbits magazine. What did Ang- Angoras, what did English Angoras look like in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, when when you first were drawn to them? And, and how do they differ now? And, you know, were there any technologies along the way that helped to evolve the breed? Well, in the 80s, there are two well, three things I think is distinctively different from today. Number one is the body type. They are long, 
long, long. Second thing is that most of them are pinched. So you can go on the show table and every single comment was pinched, pinched, pinched. And the third thing is that they molt. And a lot of rabbits don't even have a coat because you'll see ball spots everywhere. So it would be such a accomplishment if you have a rabbit where the wool is covering the entire body. And how did it change? Well, body type, of course, we have to do selective breeding. And on the wool, I think there are two technologies which totally help the wool. A, of course, genetics makes a difference too, but technology makes a difference too. One of them is Ivermectin. Because at that time, in addition to the genetically molting rabbit, there's also the problem of fermite. We didn't know they were fermite because they would have dandruff. And we'll be fighting dandruff. We will clean it. And I remember one judge was telling us to spray Listerine or the oil pan on the rabbit to kill the dandruff. Like the cooking pan oil? Yeah, cooking pan. Really? We were told to spray littering to clean, then spray PM on the surface. And did it I work? Tried the, I tried the littering, didn't work. I couldn't try PM because I knew it wouldn't work. And uh, so we were fighting the dandruff at all times. And eventually, I think in the 90s, the Ivomet came out. And that solved most of the problem of the dandruff. Then of course, the next important thing is the blower. The and blower started in 1989. And it was who, who started the, yes. the blower trend? Because I think a lot of people uh, give you credit for revolutionizing the breed with with the blower, but what? who was it? Well, I, I would take the credit for writing about it because I wrote a lot of articles but certainly I shouldn't be taking credit of thinking about it or even, even started with it. The person who started was Susan Conley of Ojai, California. She was the number one English Angora person at the time when I, was start, when I started or when it was in the 80s, all the way to 80s, she was number one. Everyone looked at her and said, oh, Susan Conley is coming. And uh, she is, quite a few years older than I am and I'm pretty old already <laughs> and, and she's still I think she's still alive and I understand she's in her 80s wow and uh, she was having problem with her hand uh, arthritis so she was trying to find something to help her to groom and she said she had an, a blower at home which was for her other animals so she tried it on the rabbits and the first time I saw the rabbits, which was blown, grown, was in September or October of 1989. There was a show in Southern California in someone's backyard. And Sullivan County came out with gorgeous rabbits. I kind of look at it and said, they look totally different. Different from my rabbit, different from her rabbits in the past, even though her rabbits was always beautiful. 
And by the way, the judge was Linda Bell. And we wow. were talking about it recently. But in that show, neither I nor Susan Conley won the show. But that's a different story. Two weeks later was the convention at Tulsa, Oklahoma. Susan Conley came in with six rabbits in six classes. She won all six classes. Her rabbit looked totally different from anyone else's. But at that time, we didn't know that she was using a blower, but she had the blower in a convention. So we were all looking at her in awe, saying, what is this thing? So before the convention ended, I already ordered it, the blower. When I got home, the blower was already there. Wow. And by the way, I won one class because <laughs> I didn't have any rabbit neck. Oh my gosh. So she was the, the dominant force in those days, right. not only on the table, but with technology. Definitely, definitely. But she had one thing is that she doesn't write. She didn't write any articles. So if you look at any literature or anything, you very seldom will find her name in any place because she just didn't write. So at the time, Polly Holmes, you know her well, yes, was the editor of Angora News. And she wanted Susan Conley to write about it. Well, Susan just didn't write. Keep on procrastinating. So Polly said to me, Betty, you got to write it because my deadline is tomorrow. You got to write me a, an article about the blower. I said, okay, I'll write one. So I wiped one out and I sent it to her and I put it in the Angora News. And that was the first time the method of blower was publicized. So I couldn't take the credit for starting the blower, but I could take the credit for helping to publicize it because yes. I was willing to write. To share those that that massive tip, and right. so so ivermectin, the blower, and as you say, of course, selective breeding, revolutionized angora rabbits, particularly the English angora, back in right. the late late eighties, early nineties. How quickly did those English angoras start to look like what we see today, with really long coats that that stay on the rabbits for you know more than a molt cycle, for example? When did you start to see angoras that look like yours today? Uh, first of all, let me go back a little bit. The non-voting part started in 1985 because just by chance, I ended up with a rabbit whose name is Christina, which is Bubbly Champagne's daughter, has a very strange coat because at the time, the preferred method of harvesting wool was plucking. But Christina had this very weird coat. You can pluck it. Mm. I would try so hard but it just wouldn't come out. The only time her wool would come out by plucking was when she had babies. So I end, she ended up having a lot of babies because I couldn't pluck her. So I said, well, how am I gonna harvest her coat? Have babies. Right. And so everyone was criticizing me saying that you got a weird rabbit. But one day I just dawned on me, this weird rabbit is actually a very good rabbit. That is, I don't have to pluck it. Why can't I use a scissor? So I use a pair of scissors to cut it. And of her babies, I would say maybe 50-50. 50 of them can be plucked. 50 of them cannot be plucked. And I cultivate this non-pluckable characteristic. So I selectively bred for 
non-pluckable rabbits. And those are the rabbits which are the foundation of today's non-molting rabbit in so Indochina Angora. So we, that was started in 1985. So your goal with that, was it, did you have in your mind a vision? Okay, if I have a, an English angora that doesn't molt, that I can grow the coat longer? Or did you do it because you didn't have to pluck? What was your goal when you were selecting that non-molting trait? I think at the time for two reasons. One of them was that the molting rabbit, which, which is very mess, messy. If you look at the cage, you have molting rabbit. It's very hard to clean the cage. The wood is just flying everywhere. So I want to maintain a very clean cage and a clean environment for my rabbits and for myself. Secondly, I have a few friends, actually a lot of friends, who have English Angora on the table. They will have ball spots. And my non-pluckable rabbit will never have ball spots. They were mat. Because at the time, there was no blower. We all have slicker brushes. But none of them will have any ball spots on the show table. So in my mind, I wasn't really thinking about wanting a long wool or anything. I was thinking about, I want to maintain a very clean rabbit tree. I don't want ball spots. And I don't mind cutting. At the time, people are still criticizing me for cutting the wool because saying the wool will be very difficult to spin. And I really didn't find cut wood hard to spin. So I would debate with them, look at them. I spin, you spin, and your spinning is about the same as my spinning. So why would my cut wool not as good as your plug wool? So that was my way of thinking. So I don't think I really had a goal to have a long wool. So now go back to your question about when would the, did the English Angora look like English Angora today? Actually, it was very quickly. Because of the non-molting characteristic, because of the blower, because of the eyeball mat, the maintenance make the coat grow continuously without molting. I'll tell you a story about one of my, my doe, which is... Um, kind of go back several years again. In 1987, I had a color junior doe whose name is Crystal Cream. She won the best of variety in the 1987 convention, my first convention. And believe it or not, actually she was best opposite of, best opposite sex of variety. Um, the best of breed was a white junior doe. The best of sex of variety is my color junior though. So at that time, most of them was the juniors which were winning because the, the seniors couldn't keep a coat. So Crystal Cream won the junior class and the best of sex of variety in 1987. 1988, I took her back to the show. She took third place. And I still won best of breed with a different rabbit, a blue doe by the name of Jessica Venus. 1989, I did not take her back to the show. 1990, by that time, I got a blower. And I didn't have a lot of rabbits, so I kept on blowing everyone that I have. When the Tampa Convention come, came along in 1990, Crystal Cream looked really good. And uh, in 1987, her wool was about three inches. In 1990, 
at three and a half years old, her wool was about eight inches. And I took her to the Tampa Convention, and she won Best of Breed. And she was how old? Three and a half years old. That's amazing. You've you've just mentioned two age groups in English Angora rabbits that really don't compete at a at a you know at a competitive show today. That's juniors. Juniors rarely win, right? Um, because right. seniors you are you know they're they're the cream of the crop. And then older rabbits, which come back to show, but after they have that first after they've been clipped or shorn once, they 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 just don't come back. They're coarser. So that's amazing to think that juniors and older rabbits were center stage back. Yes. And uh, I think the reason why Chris Queen won was because the blower. If I didn't have the blower, I don't think I would be able to to make an inch coat to go to the convention with a three and a half year old rabbit. I right. did have young younger rabbits at that convention, but for some reason, the judge just liked her better. So, and by that time, three and a half years old, she was already a grandma or great grandma, and she even couldn't have babies anymore because she was too old to have babies. But she wanted convention. So you ask the technology, the technology make a difference. But of course, after that, everyone used the same technology. Everyone had the same tool to use. So the genetic make the difference. So you asked me, uh, when did the rabbits look like today's rabbit? I would say 1990. Wow. Very quickly. Very quickly. Because you got the genetics of non-moting. You got the ivermectin to help them not to have fermi or dandruff to break the wool, and you have the blower to help them to keep on growing and the clean, clean up the skin and at the same time prevent them from matting. And of course, along the way, you still have to, to um, make better bodies because longer body and the pinch hindquarter is, was still the problem at the time. So let's talk about that. The body type on English Angoras were not good, and that probably prevented them from being successful on the best in show table, correct? At conventions and big shows. I I would I would think so. So how did how did you improve body type in in English Angoras and and maybe other breeders as well? What what was the next movement then to accelerate the breed? Well, for the for the nineteen ninety two convention best in show, I would say just by luck. I really didn't do anything special, was just breeding from inside. I didn't have any outside breeding, didn't use any other breed. I did not use any other stock. Basically, it was just from bubbling champagne back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So I would say it would be just a luck factor. After 1992, I think at the time, I also have this purist way of thinking. That is, it had to be pure. It had to be pure. You can't have anything in it because if anyone crossbreeding anything to me at the time was a sin. And also at the time, because of my non-moting rabbit, there were people who accused me of crossbreeding into giant angora, and I really resented very much because I didn't think giant angora was as good as English angora then, and I still don't think giant angora is as good as English angora today. And if anyone disagree with me, I would say English Angora had one best in show and group on a regular basis. Giant Angora only did it once, 1989. <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah, a long time ago. Actually, it was something like 10 months after the acceptance of the breed, and nothing happened since then. So I resent it very much when people say what I crossbred. 
so you asked me about how I did that, did the 1992 convention best in show. I would say just selective breeding and being very lucky. Absolutely. So you talked about grooming a lot, and that's a big part of, of your life. And of course, if you're going to, if anyone's going to maintain an Angora rabbit to show, grooming is, is a big deal. So can you tell us, describe a day for Betty Chu at home um, when it comes to grooming and the care of your, of your English Angoras? If I decided those are the rabbits that I'm showing, well, actually, you know, from, I would say, well, I would say everyone, every baby that I, I, I bred because I don't breed very much. So if, if I have only five rabbits born in my place, those are my five rabbits that I'm showing. And um, they started grooming at a very early stage. I would say about five, six weeks just to get them used to it. And uh, I started blowing, blowing on them so that they won't be afraid of it. And it's just a quick zip, zip, zip. And uh, I would say it takes about one to three minutes to groom a junior rabbit. And for my long-coated Kenyan's rabbit, I can groom it in about five to ten minutes. It's just like anything in life. If you are preparing for it well, it doesn't take a lot of effort. If you go to school, you study every day. When the test exam comes, it's no big deal. And for me, I just groom or blow my rabbit five minutes a day. I use a five as average, five minutes a day uh, on each rabbit. So if I have five, 25 minutes. If I have 10, 15 minutes. And uh, that would be done for the day. And then when the show comes on the weekend, I don't have to do anything special. Just go to the show. And I do the same thing in the show. Five minutes, ready going on the table. But you mentioned that that being prepared. So that's something that you can't just, you know, skip a few days or a week and then expect your English Angora to be in good shape and have an easy grooming, you know, when you go back to go back to working on it. So this is something that you you have to do religiously every day. Yes, I, I believe that that was the best way of doing it. I wouldn't say that you can't do it by skipping a whole week and they come back to it. I'm sure that a lot of people can do it and I may even be able can can do it. But I have a life lesson when I was in college. When I was, was in college or maybe even in high school, I was in college. In my first two years of college, we went through a very, very difficult time in high school because we have exams every single day. So when we got into high, high, uh, college, we were told, oh, it's just, just a piece of cake. College is so easy. So I didn't study very hard. So in my second year of college, I flunked out. And most people don't believe that I will flunk out, but I did. I did not know that. And uh, so when I decided that I cannot go through life like that anymore, I have to work really hard. So when I went back to college the next year, I shoot for the highest score in the class in every single exam. I studied every day. And my word to myself is that if I shoot for the highest score or perfect score in class, if I screw up, then I would still pass with a good grade. 
But if I only shoot for pass, if I screw up, then I will fail. So I cannot allow myself to do that. I shoot for the best in every mm-hmm. single class. So I graduated college, and then I went to my master program. I got my master pro, mas- I passed my master's test in one year, actually nine months. But I didn't finish my coursework, so I have to come back for coursework. I passed my master's before I finished coursework, and uh-huh. then I asked, "How soon can I get my PhD?" Oh, they said maybe four or five years. I said I would like to make it in three. They said you can try, but I don't think you can make it. Well, I didn't make three, but I made it in four. I was the second person to. Get a PhD in my class at Notre Dame. So basically, the point I'm making is that I'm just preparing for the best, and I'll、uh, put it this way: I shoot for the best, thinking that something may happen, and、uh, want to make sure that the worst is not going to be really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and that philosophy has stuck with you throughout、yes. your life, including,、exactly. of course, in rabbits. Yes, and、uh, I learned my life life lesson when I was 20 years old. So well, you know, that was long, 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 long time ago, many lifetimes <laughs> ago. So let's go back to rabbits.、Um, tell us about 1992 and where you are in your life and the convention, and of course, your very famous win. Well, 1992. Well, I think you you know, and most people know that before 1992, most of best in show winners are meat rabbits. Or meat breeds, or the big breeds. I'm just looking at the sh- the sheet.、Uh, New Zealand had won eight times before 1992, and、uh, the best in show before 1992 was Staten, and the the best in show after 1992 was Staten. <laughs> so six class <laughs> rabbits. Yeah, and then you got California, California, California. There was four California and eight New Zealand. As best in show before 1992, so for any Woolbury or any fancy breed to win a best in show at the ARBA convention has very very slim chance. However, just before I went to the convention, I just suddenly have this premonition that I was my rabbit was going to win best in show. I didn't tell anyone else except my husband. So I was packing my luggage, and I took out a sweater, which was made from bubbling champagne's wool. So I said to Albert, "I'm going to wear this sweater when I get back in show." So Albert said, "Are you sure?" I said, "I'm sure I'm going to wear the sweater, but I'm not sure I'm going to get back in show. But I just feel I'm getting it. I just feel it." So I walk into the convention. The president of the National Angora Club at the time, whose name was Suzanne, Suzanne Rapp. So Suzanne said to me, "Betty, do you think we are going to get the best in show this year?" I said, "Yeah, I think so." And then an- another very prominent English Angora breeder looked at me and said, "Yeah, you dream. This is Ohio." 
there's never any best in show for any kind of Angora in Ohio. It's not going to happen. It's okay. You know, I can dream. Well, you know the result. The rest is history. She won. So tell us about uh, best of breed judging. Um, was she your favorite rabbit going into that year? That you know that convention lineup, and how many how many English Angoras did you bring to the nineteen ninety two convention? Uh, twelve. So and you bring twelve. She, she was your favorite. I, I brought twelve, and I knew she was the best one. And she wasn't very old. She was, I would say, between seven and a half to eight and a half months old. She was born in March, and she had only one two shows before the convention. She, she only had two legs before the convention. One was a junior doe class, and one was the best in show, and judged by Shannon, Shannon Byron, if you remember her. Of course. And uh, Shannon gave her a best in show, and so I jokingly said to Shannon, and I said, Shannon, do you think she, she can get best in show in two weeks? Shannon said, maybe. I think she's just being polite. <laughs> But she was just getting really, really finished. And one of the problems with English Angora is that they chew. And they would chew their wool. But luckily, she never chewed a bit of her wool. She just looks so regal. She's so calm. And she just looks so perfect. And I just have a feeling that she was going to win. And as I said, she did. And she was the first Wolverine to have won a commission best in show and broke the ceiling. And what was her name? Her name is Sweet 16. And how did she get that name? From her year number. Her year number is BC316. And 16, 16, and the three, I was telling my husband, oh, her year number is 316. Albert said, why? Sweet 16? Oh, I said, that's a good name. So we got Sweet 16. I got it. So she wins Best of Breed. And back in those days at the convention in 1982 was um, when it comes for Best in Show judging. Was it a four class and six class? Or at that time, had we reverted to doing four groups? It was four class and six class. The Breed judge was Dr. Reed. The four class judge was Dick Year. The best in show judge was Glenn Carr. And uh, the group judging didn't start until 1996. So it was four class and six class. Six class winner was the Saturn. And it was James, ba James Bayless. And James Bayless, of course, you know that he won best in show the following year in 1993. And when you were up there watching Best in Show in 1982, uh, Dick Gear picks uh, Sweet 16 for the four class. Uh, Jim Bayless wins with the Satin for six class. Um, were you feeling good? And were you wearing that, that uh, bubbling champagne sweater as a good luck charm as well? Not at the time. Because at the time, the trophies were not given out until the ARBA banquet. Ah. So I was just wearing my... My sweatshirt, but my sweatshirt had bubbling champagne's painting on it. So she was with you. <laughs> she was you, with me. She was course. with me. And uh, oh, by the way, the sixth class judge was Dr. Reed. So you got 
Dr. Reed, the gear, and the, and the green car at the best in show table. Some of the and most I, prominent names of their day, for sure. Right. At that time, they, those were the three most prominent judges. And also, they did have a kind of production, not as elaborate production as today, but the production was quite good. Instead of having just a regular judging table, they, they took all the coops, those, you know, the, the kind of regular holding coops, the 22 by 22 or 20 by 20 coops. They line up all those 20 coops, those 20 by 20 coops, and the angoras all get the wire bottom. So the coops, as you know, is you can see on both sides or every side. So you got this long, 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 long table, and all the briefs were. You got all the six class rabbits and you got all the four class rabbits. So when the judges were judging, you actually can see it. Four class judge on one side, the six class judge on the other side. And actually, I have a videotape and I still remember all the six classes were, if I'm facing it, it's on the left side and the four class one on the right side. And the judging is happening simultaneously, both four and six class at the same time? At the same time. And you said that the, um, the trophy was given out at the banquet, but was the announcement made during or right after the best in show ceremony, or was the announcement for the winner made at the banquet? The announcement of winners were, were at the table. And actually, the trophies were given out at that time for picture taking. So I did have picture taken with the trophy, with the rabbit, and with the judge. And well, actually, not really with the judge. I think that they, they just left. <laughs> so people just put the trophy there and they just kind of pushed me to the, to the table with the rabbit. So I got a lot of pictures taken. And then the trophies were taken away again. I carried the rabbit and that's it. And people said, well, I got to go to the banquet. And I kind of, I don't know whether I remember it correctly or not. I don't think I had a banquet ticket. I don't think I I knew that trophies was giving out at the banquet at the time. So they were trying to scramble to find me a ticket to go to the banquet. So I was able to go back to the hotel and put on my sweater and went to the banquet. And Cindy Wood-Kaiser gave me the, the trophy. She was president that year? She was the president at that time. Wow. So going back to your philosophy about, you know, aiming for the stars, shooting for the stars and you know, going for perfection, going for best in show. Um, and, you know, if you fall short a little bit, that's still better than if you didn't go in there trying hard enough and then, you know, really failing. Um, you win best in show in 1982. You're, you're still doing this, you know, 30 years later after that. Um, what, you know, how is best in show to you today? Is that still something that you aim for? Or do, you know, what goes into your mind when it, when it comes to best in show and your, your thoughts on it today? Well, I'm still aiming for it, but I do realize it's, getting harder and harder. People are all improving. And at the same time, you know, there, you have to be pragmatic. You have to be realistic. So I try my best. I still shooting for the stars, but I tell myself, you know, as long as I have done the best I can, if I get it, it's my luck. If I don't get it, I try my best. What else can I do? And uh, as you know, and I know, in life, we have to try very hard, but at the same time, luck play a little bit of a role. I remember Joe Kim said one time after he got his best in show, he said, I'm always prepared to 
except the luck falling from the sky. But if I'm not ready, the luck may drop to the ground. That's what I said to myself. I'm always ready to accept the luck. But right. if the luck doesn't come, nothing I can do. Absolutely. And I, I remember when I was in fifth grade, there was a quote on a teacher's wall in school and it said, and I, I remember that to this day, it was one of my, one of my philosophies it, it, and it's, it sounds a lot like, like what you just said, but the quote said, you know, the only true failure is the failure to try. Exactly. I agree. I totally, totally agree. So whatever we do, we just have to try the best. Absolutely. We, we may or may not succeed, but if we tried, then I think we deserve to pat ourselves on the back and say, I did my best. Mm -hmm. So English Angoras are clearly, you know, I, I get to see you a lot at rabbit shows and I, I, I'm always stopped dead in my tracks when I watch someone uh, fairly new to, to rabbits, or maybe it's their first time at a show and they walk by your, your English Angoras and they are just awestruck. I mean, the, the, their jaws are on the ground. They are just like, what, what is that? Is that, is that real? Is that a cat? Is that, you know, um, and those those reactions, those common reactions that people have to your rabbits in the English Angora breed, um, have made English Angoras rather famous uh, in media. So, and and you have you've done it. Uh, you've been you know publicized um, around the world. Tell us about some of your TV appearances over the years and um, some of your most famous moments outside of rabbits, but with your English Angoras and showing the world um, all about these. Well, the first time I got a TV exposure was a long time ago, in 1986. The local CBS station had a program called Matt and Motley. And uh, they featured me in a six-minute segment. But no one caught on. It was, well, it was actually shown over and over and over. And I had students from San Jose State will come back and, and come in the class and tell me that I just saw you on the on the plane. I said, what do you mean you saw me on the plane? He said, well, I was going back to Asia or going back to Europe and uh, they were putting on the short films and you were there. On the airplane. That was the main. And so it was 10 years. They oh showed God. this whole thing over and over. But however, no one caught on. It's not on YouTube. I have a tape, but however, no one caught on. And then in 2006, I think, uh, a guy, uh, a person whose name is, by the last name of Green, had nothing to do with Carol. <sighs> Gary, I remember. Gary Green contacted me and said, we have a game show. Would you like to come to a game show with your rabbit? I said, game show? What do I do with the game show with a rabbit? Uh, the, the game show is called, let me see, the game show is called I've Got a Secret. We'd like you to come with your rabbit. And the secret was my rabbit won best in show. <laughs> oh, I said, okay, sounds interesting. And I said, they'll pay you $1,000. Oh, sure, of course I come, you know. So I drove to Southern California. They put me up in a hotel for one night. The next day I went on the the filming, had a little bit of rehearsal, then filmed, then I just went home. And that game show was really a very small cable station. 
I couldn't even get it myself. So I have to ask people to tape it so that I can watch it. But somehow that game show started to get attention, and I started to get some inquiries. So I usually just reply, and people ask for pictures. And then in let me see, twenty eleven, in a show in Watsonville, I was grooming a rabbit by the name of Liliana. Someone walked by. This someone is just walked by. It's not even in the rabbit show. Say, oh, can I take a picture of you? I said, sure. So I said, "Oh, take a picture for me." I gave gave him my my camera. So that picture was that picture with me with this big white rabbit. The very famous photo. It's been all over the world. Yeah, right. And、uh, somehow that picture got picked up by、uh, by one of the TV websites, Oh Huffington. And then suddenly. I got requests from everywhere wanting my pictures, wanting the, my rabbit pictures, wanting to interview me, and、uh, it was really a big surprise. And then in nineteen in two thousand and、uh, I think thirteen or fourteen, or no, two thousand and eleven or twelve,、uh, Amy Du had the rabbit fever and asked to. Do a part for his film, for her film, and her film was already done. So she just added me into her film. And then, I think the Today Show asked Amy to go, and、uh, Amy asked me to go along. But we took the trip, but because of the tsunami in Japan, we were canceled when we were at the hotel. And then after that, a little bit later. I got an invitation from Steve Harvey show to go on his show, and but the reason why I mentioned that I've got a secret is because the reason I got to got to the Steve Harvey show was because the producer in the I've got a secret ended up in the Steve Harvey show, so the producer there said, "I got a good." Idea. Why don't we get this woman who has this huge rabbit to come over to our show? So I got the Steve Harvey show. The after Steve Harvey show, I don't know whether they had anything to do with it. I got the invitation from Guinness Book of Record and asked me to do a Guinness Book of Record to challenge a nine-inch long wool contest, saying that the longest hair on the cat was nine inches. Whether I can beat it? Oh, I said piece of cake. You know? <laughs> Piece of cake. Only you would say that. Yeah, piece of cake. You know, nine inches is nothing. So they want me to cut a rabbit to measure the wool. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. He said, well, that's how the cat was done. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I said, it's more important for me to show the rabbit than making a Guinness Book of Record. I, I don't really care about Guinness Book of Record. I want to show. He said, okay, would you measure it? On the rabbit, but you have to hire, invite a veterinarian to do that. I said, "Okay, that I can do." So, I invited a veterinarian to my home, and I invited Kathy Groves and her friend to come over as witness. So, 
three of them plus me plus my husband we recorded the entire measurement and we have to put it into a big package that is each picture showing the length of each strand of wool and they have to have a video showing the entire process and have to fill out a whole bunch of forms and send this whole package to Guinness Book of Records. How long did that take to document that? The measurement, the, the whole thing was only, you know, a couple hours, but I have to do the preparation, fill out all the forms, then Albert has to put the package together and uh, I put it this way, I wouldn't be able to do it myself. So I, I think it was at least a couple of days. Wow. And we send it over there and um, then they, they said, well, we are going to take picture of, have a professional pro photographer to come to your house to take picture in, in a few months. And by the way, the measurement was done in August. And so we are coming in, we have a professional photographer start taking pictures of all the record holders in January. I say January. I said, I'm not going to keep the rabbit's coat, a 14-inch long coat, to, to January. She's going to be cut down within about two or three months. And she got to have babies. So they sent a photographer over in, I think, in September and gave me the certificate or the plat for the record, but told me that I cannot review this record for a whole year because it will be going into the 2015 Guinness Book Record and it will be a, a lead, uh, we call, call it the, the lead of the, the, the publicity. So I kept the secret for something like 13 or 14 months. Wasn't easy, but I did. And ultimately, you are you still the reigning uh, champion of the longest wool on a rabbit or longest hair on a rabbit to this day with Guinness Book of, of Records? I think so. I think the only person who can do that again probably is myself. Mm -hmm. Because in addition to having the rabbit to break the record, the process wasn't easy, to be honest. So also the timing, and Alan, you know, and I know, the, rabbit, the rabbits don't look like that at all times. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Yeah, there's only a window of opportunity for that to happen. So I'm actually pretty sure I have rabbits have were longer than that 14.37 inches from Francesca, but the timing wasn't right. And, uh, you know, it takes a long time to get the Guinness Spoken Record to make the arrangement if you, 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 you apply for it. In my case, it was an invitation. You can apply for it. But it takes a long time for them to reply to you and get, go through this entire process. So it could take months to get just the whole ball rolling. Right. And, and as you said, you've had longer wool than... Than the one than Francesca that was in that was actually recorded as the longest wool ever, but because of timing and 
you know, having that, that exact moment when it was capable of being recorded, she exactly. just happened to be the one. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's, I would say, as I said, because I know the process already, if I really want to do it, I probably can apply for it again, but I just can't see the point of doing that. <laughs> and exactly. on top of that, because that 14.3 inches wall was the first record. So Guinness Book Record really publicized it. If I do it again, I doubt they will do that kind of publicity anymore because they have something like 30,000, 40,000 applications each year. And they only publicize a very small number of the records. Wow. And for our uh, listeners, all of this that you're talking about is recorded on on your blog for the Northern Angora, Northern California Angora Rabbit Club or Guild. So uh, tell everyone how they can find that blog. And your blog is incredible it, because you're not on Facebook. You're, you're not really into social media, but you've kept this blog longer than Facebook has been around. And you've documented over the years, not only your own English Angoras, but Angora, all four Angora breeds um, at shows here in California and across the country and at conventions. And it really is um it really is a, a a journal almost of of Angora rabbits. So tell us how can we find that blog and and dive in and, and look at some of those photos because even like you've just told us about your your Guinness Book of of records, um, that's all on there and people can still access it. So how can we find your blog? The blog address is ncag.blogspot.com. Uh, if you can't find it, you can go to Google and just say Betty Choose Blog. My <laughs> name true. is not on it. But if you say Betty Choose Block, you'll find it. For some reason, Google just associate me with the Northern California Angora Guild. So ncag.blogspot.com. The blog started in 2005. And I post almost every day. Yes, you do. Very religiously. And uh, right now it's 2021. So for 16 years, I almost have a daily post. If not daily, then at least 360 days, 360 posts <laughs> a year. I, I can vouch for that. I know you do very, very religiously post to that blog. And even though we don't have very many shows in the last year, you still were posting updates on Angora rabbits and sharing your passion and, and getting everyone excited about your beautiful animals. Yeah, in addition to the Angoras that I post, I post all kinds of Angoras. But at the same time, I also record most of the best in shows in our local area. So if I'm at the show and there are best in show going on, even though I, whether I win or I don't win, I try to take pictures of all the best in show winners or reserve in show winners because I feel that they accomplished you know, the best they can do and I would like to publicize them as well. So if I'm at the show you see me taking pictures of everyone and taking pictures of all, all the big winners. They're all recorded on our blog. Yes, yes. You, you do pay homage to those those big wins. That Best in Show is a, is a really important aspect, something that you respect very highly, probably, probably more than, than most people. And uh, all of those photos for uh, lots of breeds, as you said, are on that blog. Um, we're, we're very lucky to have access to that. And thank you for sharing the link. I'll make sure to post a link when we post this podcast on Facebook and elsewhere so that um, our listeners can dive into your blog and, and see all those beautiful rabbits, not just Angoras, but across the, across the Arabia spectrum. So Betty, well, we've kept you a long time. Um, I got a couple more things for you. 
Sure. Um, and this is something that we ask every, every one of our guests. So hypothetically, just imagine, um, what would the perfect rabbit show be for you? The perfect day at a rabbit show, what would it be like? Perfect day of rabbit show, I would be starting. Well, actually, I look, I like local shows much better than the national shows because national shows, I have to go out of state and uh, I don't like to stay in hotels and I don't like to travel and I'm a homebody. My perfect day of rabbit show is a one day show. I would like to be at the showroom at seven o'clock in the morning, got everything set up and I started grooming and talking with people and uh, hugging with hugging people and uh, just be happy. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully we'll be on the table at 10, about 10 o'clock in the morning. And then on the table again at maybe two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, then best in show at four o'clock. And uh, hopefully I will win best in show. <laughs> Absolutely. We've seen you do it so many, so many times. By the way, how many best in shows do you have? Do you know how many best in shows over the years, over the almost 40 years of having Angora rabbits? I don't know. That I cannot tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised because you, you usually are able to pull those facts out of your head. And I'm like, whoa, how do you, how do you remember that? <laughs> I, I don't know. And uh, I think the, the best year I've ever had best in show was something like 25. That was the best year, but I don't think I get that many in the recent years. <laughs> that was 25 all-breed best-in-shows with different Angora rabbits throughout one year. Yes. Wow. I, oh, just English. Because yes. at, that the best years at the time, I didn't have any French. And as you know, that I only had French for about six or seven years. And I did win a, a few best-in-shows with my French Angora. And uh, you were very kind, and uh, you have given me a couple of them. But for me... English is close to my heart. French is that, yeah, it's nice. I want with the French. But if you ask me what would I like to have, I would like to have a best in show on my English Angora. Yes, I remember you telling me that. You said, if I could choose one, it would be an English show for a French. If I had, to, if I was going to win best in show. Definitely. Yeah, they're, they're once in a while, I know that the French was, was better than English on that day. But in my heart, I would still say, oh, please give them to my English show, please. please. <laughs> I remember. And um, one of the, one of my favorite things that I look forward to, uh, and you mentioned it uh, when we go to rabbit shows, is, is getting that hug from Betty Chu in the morning. You always come over and, and give me a hug, whether I'm pulling my hair out doing you know, KW cages or if I'm getting ready to judge. I, I look forward to that hug. And it was unfortunate this past year when we didn't have very many shows or when we did, we, we couldn't hug anymore. And us rabbit people, we do love to get our hugs. Yep. Well, luckily that you are fully vaccinated. I'm fully <laughs> vaccinated. And then uh, Today or yesterday, it says that we no longer need to wear masks in outdoor settings. And most of our shows right now are, are really well ventilated. So hopefully we can hug. So bring on the hugs. Yes. I love it. All right. One last thing, Betty. This year, Airbnb Convention, we're going to go back to it. We get to travel to Louisville, Kentucky later this year in October for the ARBA convention. Of course, we missed it last year. It was a total bummer. It's the first rabbit convention in both your and my history where we we couldn't go because it didn't exist. Um, and you have attended a lot of ARBA conventions. And I remember standing with you at the 2018 convention. We were in Massachusetts. And I believe we were watching the, maybe it was the Broken English Angora uh, COD presentation at the Standards Committee on that last uh, Tuesday of the convention. And, and somehow you, you, you mentioned that you can recite all of the conventions you've been to, their years, and the cities. And I'm like, really? And, and you did. So 
I have been waiting for this moment to be able to share with everyone else uh, that that incredible talent that you have that you could just pull out of your head. So, Betty, take it away. Okay. 1987, Portland, Oregon. 1988, Madison, Wisconsin. 1989, Tulsa, Oklahoma. 1990, Tampa, Florida. 1991, Pomona, California. 1992, Columbus, Ohio. 1993, Tacoma, Washington. 1994, Tulsa, Oklahoma. 1995, Louisville, Kentucky. 1996, Peoria, Illinois. 1997, Madison, Wisconsin. 1998, Portland, Oregon. 1999, Louisville, Kentucky. 2000, Columbus, Ohio. 2001, San Diego, California. 2002, Peoria, Illinois, 2003, Wichita, Kansas, 2004, Providence, Rhode Island, 2005, Indianapolis, Indiana, 2006, Fort Worth, Texas, 2007, Grand Rapids, Michigan, 2008, Louisville, Kentucky, 2009, San Diego, California, 2010, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 2011, Indianapolis, Indiana, 2012, Wichita, Kansas, 2013, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 2014, Fort Worth, Texas, 2015, Portland, Oregon, 2016, San Diego, California, 2018, sorry, 2017, Indianapolis, Indiana, 2018, West Springfield, Massachusetts, 2019, Reno, Nevada. Amazing. Nothing in 2020 and 2021, unfortunately, I'm going to tell you I'm not going. Oh, Betty, you're not going to Louisville? No, I'm not. Oh, my gosh. That's not going to be the same without you. I'm not planning on it. Unless there's some miracle happen at this point, <sighs> I'm not planning on it. Well, we'll have to send you updates and photos for your blog so you can update everyone around the country uh, in your in your absence, because I, I know you're going to be wanting to still share that that convention with people, even though you can't can't be there. Definitely. <laughs> well, Betty, thank you so much for joining us today. You. you are an inspiration and a driving force, and um, you know you're a trailblazer. And there's no there's no question why you are considered the most famous rabbit person in the world. And I believe that a lot of people would would, would agree with me. And we're we're very lucky to. I'm very lucky to be around you and to have your spirit and energy and, and anyone that that's come across and, and been, been, been touched by you, even just in photos. Um, so thank you for all of your years and we can't wait to see you at upcoming shows. It's going to be on a local level. It sounds like for you uh, this year and can't wait to get our Betty Chu hugs. Um, Betty, we love you. And again, thank you for joining us on best in show of the podcast. And thank you so much for having me and uh, I will see you soon. Sounds good. Say hi to Albert for us. Thank you. Ellen, that was a great interview. I'm really enjoying the series with the Best in Show winners and listening to all the similarities and the differences in their approaches and, you know, pathways to reaching that ultimate goal. So going back to that May-June 1992 DR, um, I found an article written by Doc Reed um, that's titled Membership in the American Rabbit Breeders Association. Is it worth the membership charge? What do you get for the membership fee? 
And I know that people have been asking that, I mean, obviously for a long time, but even more now, um, as you know, it's easier to access information about things. You can just go on the internet and ask people questions and sometimes find free sources. Um, so people sometimes ask, you know, what is the value of ARBA membership or even other club membership? Um, you know, the ARBA still has a domestic rabbits publication that's available only to members. Um, but there, there are still those questions out there. So he wrote this long article and came up with some really great points. So I'm going to share those today. Um, first, it talks about that it's an organizational body of individuals with a common interest. And I like that it says, you know, it talks about getting people together to unite in their interests and information and fellowship, but that many precious and lasting friendships have been developed by individuals that met through membership in our association. Talked about how um, it charters local and state rabbit and or KV organizations, as well as various breed specialty clubs. At the time of the writing, there were 478 local all-breed clubs, 292 local or state breed specialty associations, 28 state associations, 42 national breed specialty associations, six show circuits, 245 fairs, and 59 youth clubs chartered with the ARBA in 1991. Uh, the next one is that it sanctions rabbit and KV exhibitions. In 1991, there were 1,926 open shows and 942 youth shows. In those shows, 618,370 rabbits and 29,570 KVs were exhibited. The licensing of rabbit and KV judges, it talks about that process and how the association manages that uh, in 1991. There were 322 judges um, maintaining the standard of perfection. That's a big one. Um, at the time, the standard had 45 breeds and 11 breeds of cabies, as well as a standard for fur, wool, commercial, and meat classes. And talked about that the standard was revised every five years in years that are divisible by five. Um, licensing of registrars, another process that it details a bit. In 1991, there were 745 registrars. Maintenance of a National Registry of Merit System for Rabbits and Cavies. Um, as of 1991, 15,000 animals were registered. Um, they set rules and guidelines for the National Convention and Show. And it talks about at the time, um, and as we talked about earlier, the hobby was really growing at this time. There were a lot of clubs being chartered. Um, this extravaganza usually attracts from 8,000 to 14,000 exhibits in excess of 1,200 exhibitors, many visitors, and other interested parties. As we know now, um, we can get up to 20,000, um, if not more, animals at um, some of our Midwestern conventions. So those have definitely grown. Uh, it talks about the informational materials provided with the membership, um, yearbook, and everything that was in that. That's a publication that has kind of gone by the wayside that used to be printed and mailed out and had actually the names and addresses of every member. Um, which it's not such a popular thing now to have your address sent out to, you know, 20,000 people. Um, the official guidebook to raising better rabbits and cavies, a domestic rabbit publication. Uh, it also talks about the informational and publicity materials available for local distribution, the availability of youth scholarships, um, the grants and funding for rabbit and cavy research, um, this is something that, you know, has been worked on and it's something that the ARBA um, still does. They still have a research and development fund, um, but sometimes the cost for participation in those things is kind of prohibitive for an association like ours with our budget. 
in this day and age. And it also talks about networking of rabbit and cavey informational sources. Um, so at the time, it talks about, you know, how the ARBA was kind of a, um, a place that anyone could contact and get good information about all aspects of the hobby, you know, um, for meat rabbits or for wool production, for show, and just kind of being a central resource. Of course, this was before the internet. So a person would, you know, maybe have to go to the library or something like that to begin looking for information on how to raise rabbits for any of these purposes or to perhaps their local extension office um, and then find some materials that gave them referral to the ARBA. So um, as you can see, a lot of these benefits haven't changed. Some of them have changed a little bit with the advent of the internet and technology. But um, many of the things that we know and love about the ARBA are still the same. That's incredible. 1992 really was a momentous year for the ARBA. I mean, a lot of the things you just mentioned are pathways and systems that we adhere to today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some things have changed, but a whole lot has stayed the same. Yeah, it's so cool. Um, I love what you said earlier um, from Dr. James McNitt's article when he kind of talked about some of the early animal rights stuff and, you know, zonings. I and mean, those are things that we deal with now. I did not think that that was a hot topic back then, or maybe it wasn't a hot topic, but it was certainly an emerging topic. And to think about it back then, it's like, it's crazy because we had more of an ag-based or maybe an ag-understanding society back then. Certainly not now. Um, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that was kind of when these topics started to become a thing. You know, animal mm -hmm. rights and all of that started to... I remember being a kid in 4-H and there was um, like a program or an organization that was kind of to combat that. It was an animal welfare organization and it was something about like, you had little buttons you could wear that said, I care for my animals. And it kind of gave advice for how to, you know, present your animals while at the fair and how to talk to the public about, you know, providing good animal welfare as opposed to animal rights. Right. That's so smart. Honestly, that's a, a great preventative to go in there with that, you know, to, not to warn the kids, but to kind of get them prepared for if you are asked these questions, which we all have, by the way, you know, when we're when we're judging around in public doing this, it's like, why are they in such small cages? You know, we've, we've all heard it. Yeah, yeah, because because this is where they ride. It's like I sit in a very small airplane seat when I go somewhere. Exactly. Have you flown American lately, guys? It's the same yeah. thing. Uh, at least they right. can stand up and turn around. I can't. <laughs> no kidding. All right. That was a great episode. We want to thank uh, Betty Chu for joining us today. Of course, she's a legend in, in rabbits. You know, whether you're here in the ARBA or around the world, there is no face that is more more married to the show rabbit industry than Betty Chu. And it was so good to have her on tonight. Um, her stories are incredible. And it's unfortunate that she won't be in Louisville this year. I was going to say, everyone, if you get a chance and bump into her in Louisville to just have a moment with her. But uh, I'm sure she'll be back at the next convention, which is going to be in 2022 in Reno. It's a local show for her. So she will certainly be there and get a moment with Betty Chu. She's, she's, she's an amazing and remarkable woman. And she's been doing this for decades. Um, as we conclude, I want to remind everyone to uh, like and follow The Rabbitry on Facebook. That's, again, going to serve as our hub for our podcast. And we've got some other exciting stuff coming with The Rabbitry over time to uh, you know, serve as a kind of a hub for good information, education, resources in the rabbit and KV industry. So again, like and follow The Rabbitry on Facebook. And uh, as Brian, mentioned in one of our earlier podcasts, we decided to do quotes at the end of our podcast. And we both love quotes. So I'm actually going to pull a quote out of something that Betty Chu said tonight. And it was it was really meaningful. And it, it she, she says this is her, her philosophy on life. And she learned this um, 
in her 20s when she was in college. And believe it or not, as you heard tonight, um, Betty Shu flunked her very first semester of college, which if you know Betty Shu, you would be very surprised to find that out. And she said she had, you know, kind of a, a revelation during then. And uh, she came up with her life philosophy then. And I think it is one that certainly, Brian, you, you and I would agree on. And anyone that's, you know, you mentioned the word perfection earlier, that uh, anyone striving for perfection, you know, that best in show um, will will understand. And if and if maybe you're not, maybe maybe take a moment to listen to this quote from Betty Chu and and see if it's not maybe something that you could adopt as your philosophy in life as well. So Betty Chu says, if only shoot for passing and I screw up, then I will fail. But I sh if I shoot for the highest and I screw up, then I'll still succeed. I always prepare and shoot for the highest. So Betty came up with that quote in her 20s after she flunked out of college in her first semester. And since then, she's been a raging success in whatever she does and touches. And I think that that's something that we can all live and strive to. So guys, have a wonderful day or night wherever you are in the world listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Brian and I absolutely love doing this and sharing our stories and sharing stories from others within the Rabbit and KV community because there are so many and it's time we get to share them. Brian, what do we say every time? And until next time, talk rabbits and talk KVs. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.